0: one of the most enigmatic characters in the entire Torah is Noah. And he's enigmatic in the sense that, despite what seems to be straightforward, effusive praise for him in the Torah, as we all know, Chazal had a much more conflicted view of Noah and read into the various psukim phrases, sometimes, in some opinions at least, very positive things, kipshutam, but other times uh, seeming to see uh, perhaps some veiled negative references towards Noach. Of course the most famous example of this is in the opening pasuk of our Parsha. toldos Noach, <speaking> Noach Ish <in Hebrew> Tzadik, Noah. These are the offspring of Noach as we translate it. Noach was a tzadik, a perfect uh, for his generation. tamim <speaking in Hebrew> So we're all familiar with the famous Machlokes about whether that is intended to be a compliment to Noah or a backhanded compliment in the sense of more of an insult that had Noah been in any other generation, he wouldn't have been considered righteous. What I think is perhaps less well-known is the fact that the same debate occurs at the end of the Pasuk. How do you understand the Pasuk's final phrase, Es Elokim hisalech Noach. Noach walked with Hashem. And here too there is a debate, in fact a very rich debate, in some of the classical Mepharshim, on how to understand this final phrase. What does it mean, es ha'elukim hishaleich noach? So Rashi, right away, uh, continues on the more negative theme, and Rashi says that this is also a contrast with Avraham, about whom it says later, in Parshas Lechelcha and Perak Yudzayin, hishaleich lifanai, that Avram walked before Hashem, versus Noach only walked With Hashem, and therefore, what seems to be you know a compliment, what could be bad about walking with Hashem, turns out to be in fact Noah once again falling short in comparison to Avram, because Avram walked before Hashem. What is the difference between before and with? So Rashi continues and explains that Noah walked with Hashem because he needed the help and support of Hashem to hold him up, as it were, spiritually to face his challenge, as opposed to Avraham was able to do it on his own may a love. He could do it on his own, and therefore he could walk ahead of Hashem. Noach was constantly uh, wobbly and not falling because he had Hashem to lean on, so to speak, and to support him. This interpretation is also echoed by the Al Alshech here in his comments uh, on our parak, and he describes the nature of of, Avr, of Noach tzidkus. He says this pasuk describes not only that Noah was a Tzadik, but this phrase, Esha Hisalech Noach, describes the type of Tzaddik. That is to say, he was only Esha Hisalech. He only walked with Hashem. He stayed secluded in his home, alone with Ha-Kadosh Baruch Barchu and his own family. He never went out. He never left, so to speak, Hashem. He never went out to reach the people. And therefore, he was just Beno Lekono Levad. He stayed, so to speak, in a secluded cocoon, protected spiritual bubble, and as a result, But his descendants, in the sense of the B'nei Doro, the people of the generation, were not uplifted, they were not inspired, and they were not, they did not improve their ways, and therefore they didn't merit to be saved, they were destroyed, and Noach let them down, because he was only walking with Hashem, he never ventured out to walk with the people to inspire them. So these two approaches, that of Rashi and the Alshich, take the negative approach towards Noah. However, it is important to note that other mafarshim disagree. The Sforno says that this is in, in fact an unadulterated compliment to Noah. Excuse me. What does that mean? He walked with Hashem. It's as if he imitated Hashem, as we have in other contexts. To walk with Hashem means to imitate Hashem. He followed in His ways, just like Hashem does good to other people. So too, Noah did good to other people. And furthermore, says the Sforno, he actually did interact with the people of his generation. He was mochiach them. He did try to correct their behavior and to encourage them to do the right thing. Unfortunately, he was not successful. But this pasuk, and at least this phrase, says the Sforno, is absolutely a compliment. Similarly, the Radak says that he was davek. To Hashem, Becholderachov Lishmo. He was completely close to and cleaving to Hashem in every action, and therefore that is why, because he was so committed to Hashem, he was able to avoid all of the temptations and all the challenges that would have been surrounding him, and that's how he avoided being brought down by his contemporaries. What is particularly fascinating is that these two approaches, Rashi and the Al on the one hand, who see this as a slight negative comment about Noah. And the Sforno and the Radak, who see this more as an unadulterated positive comment about Noach, both ideas seem to be described by the Abarbanel. The Abarbanel begins by speaking very positively of Noach in this context that despite the fact that he lived among Rishayim, lo halach itam, he did not follow them, he only Connected to Hashem, lo nifrad mimenu, he never separated from Hashem his whole life. That's what it means he walked with Hashem, exactly as we saw from the Sporno and the Radak. However, a little bit later in the same piece, says the Barbanel, yet again, he also contrasts, like Rashi, the description of Noach. To the description of Avraham. And he says, despite what he had just said a few lines earlier about how complimentary he was to Noah, resisting temptation and being loyal to Hashem, nevertheless, he says he was not like Avraham. Because Avraham was able to do everything he did out of Ahava. But when it comes to Noah, he did not have that positive, I guess, self-motivation or love of Hashem. Rather, the Torah is giving us a more modest compliment. He wasn't bad like the rest of his generation. But not that he loved Hashem and did something more ambitious or positive like Avram had done. As far as I could tell, uh, the Abrabanel is not any more specific on what ways Noah fell short. He just says that Avram was Me'ava and that's not what it's saying about him. Noach, but I think the complexity of Noach's character is seen not only in the debate here between Mepharshim, but even the different ideas within the Abarbanel. That's how complex and that's how ambiguous a character Noach is. On the one hand, he presents so much positive and so much potential. On the other hand, he seems to have fallen short in certain critical ways that are highlighted by various Mepharshim. There is considerable debate about the spiritual status and level of Noah at the outset of our Parsha. Was he in fact a truly great tzaddik who would have stood out in any generation? Or was he merely the best of a bad lot who looked like a tzaddik compared to the wicked people of his generation? But had he been surrounded by other more spiritually elevated people, perhaps he would have fallen short or certainly been unimpressive. That debate notwithstanding, and there are opinions in both directions in Chazal. What seems clear, however, is that his behavior at the aftermath of the flood is far less ambiguous and unfortunately far more disappointing. The very first thing that we are told about Noah when he leaves the Teva, when he leaves the ark, after he and his family have been miraculously saved, they are the only survivors, after the entire world has been destroyed, they have you would think so much to be grateful for to Hashem, and such a close connection to Him, and yet the first thing Noah does, we are told, Noah isha adama And Noah, who was an isha adama, a man of the earth, he debases himself, and he plants a vineyard. So him continue, and they tell us how he drank the wine, he got drunk, and as I said, he debases himself. Various opinions exactly how bad it was, but suffice it to say, not what we would expect expected from someone who is described at the outset of the parsha as a tzaddik, let alone one of the greats. What is particularly striking is the fact that the Torah refers to Noach here as an ish adama. Now, we might easily have glossed over that phrase, given the fact that the Torah is about to tell us that he became a farmer, he planted a vineyard... However, we are drawn to it by a comment in the Medrish. The Medrish contrasts this description of Noach here at the end of our parsha with the description of Noach at the outset of the parsha. And then, com- in combination, contrast the two descriptions of Noach with two parallel descriptions of Moshe. Says the Medrish, Rabbi Brachia, Chaviv Moshe miNoach. Moshe was greater than Noach. Noach, Mishnikra Ish Tzadik, nikra Ish Adama. Noach starts off the parsha, Ish Tzadik, he's a holy man, a righteous man, and now he's a man of the earth, a debased person, Ish Adama. But Moshe, on the other hand, Mishnikra Ish Mitzri, the beginning of the story, he's known as an Ish Mitzri, when he runs away to Minyan, he identifies himself, he first himself as an Ish Mitzri, an Egyptian. And of course, later in his career, he becomes known as the Ish elokim, a man of God. So, the medrash is contrasting these descriptions of Noach, which it clearly takes as being very uh, profoundly uh, reflective of his personality, that he was on a higher level in the beginning, Ish tzaddik, and then eventually he lowered himself to become an Isha Adama, as opposed to Moshe, who started off as merely an Ish Mitri, but ends on top, as were, as an Isha elokim. What is the message of this medrash? So, the simple understanding of the medrash is simply that. The direction, progress is important. It doesn't matter how you start, so to speak, but rather how you finish. However, when it comes to the deeper meaning of this Medrash, perhaps we can say more. And that is the insight of the Meshachma. Meshachachma sees in Moshe and Noah typologies, two categories of tzaddikim. It says the the Meshachachma, There's two ways to approach Hashem. One is someone who's a loner, who keeps to himself, avoids temptation, perhaps meditates or at least goes off completely on his own, avoiding other people, avoiding temptation, just focuses on his own spiritual growth. And there's a second type of tzaddik, says the haklal, Umafgir Nafsho Avuram, someone who's solely dedicated, not just who lives among other people and is a sociable person, but someone who dedicates his energies to not necessarily improving himself, but serving the Tibor. Says that Khafma, not only that have we had models of this throughout history, intuitively, commonsensically, we would expect that somebody who focuses on their own spiritual development and growth, who avoids temptation and the like will obviously grow and reach a higher level than someone who doesn't really pay attention at all to his own growth, and rather is just focusing on the needs of others, focusing on the needs of the tibor. And, truth be told, says the Meshachachma, there's a medrash that he quotes from Kohalas Raba that confirms that intuitive assumption. Nevertheless, says the Meshachachma, it doesn't have to be the case, it's not always the case. Bechozos matzanu shenoach, hit boded, doro, and yet... He, unfortunately, suffers a regression of the highest order. That is to say, claims the Meshachma. Noach is the typology, he is the paradigm of this first category. He focused on himself, not only before the, the flood, but perhaps even during the ark. We never have any record of him talking to anyone, being involved with anyone. And yet, he started off as a Tsadik, and his withdrawal from other people, his lack of care about other people, ended up leading him in the wrong direction. He went from being a Tsadik to a debased Ish Adama. On the other hand, Moshe started off as merely an ish mitzri, someone who was limited significantly by being in Egypt and then a midjan. However, because of his dedication to the Jewish people, both when he got involved and killed the mitzri to save the Jewish slave, and then of course later throughout his 40 years of selfless and dedicated and unparalleled leadership in the midbar, as a result Moshe went in the opposite direction. He began as an ish mitzri, but he ends up as an ish Elohim says the Meshechachma, Holo Maser Atzma al Yisrael, etc., in various forms. Higia, latachis, ha'adam, Moshe Rabbeinu achieved the highest level a human being can because he was the exact opposite of Noach. He was focused on other people, and that selflessness led him from becoming merely an Ish mitzri, a limited person, to an Ish Elohim, the highest compliment. Noach, on the other hand, focused on his own growth, and that was a short term win but a long-term loss. Initially, by focusing on himself, he became an Ish sadiq But because he never grew beyond that, never saw beyond his own needs and spiritual growth, never looked beyond himself, never helped other people, he ended his career not as an Ish sadiq but rather as an Ish Adama The tragic story of Migdal Baval and their punishment, as they become known, the Dor HaFlaga, the generation of dispersion, provides a fascinating postscript, almost a bookend, to the more dominant and well-known story at the outset of our parsha, the story of the flood and the story of Noach. What is particularly striking, and this is already noted by Chazal in the Medrash and Barathez Rabbah, is that unlike the story of the flood, where Nisparesh Avonam, the Torah itself, pretty much makes clear what their sin was, sexual immorality, Avodah and certainly Chamos, as the Torah tells us, they stole from each other. When it comes to the generation of dispersion, Migdal Bavel, it's not clear what was wrong. What did they do wrong? What was their sin? Lonis Barish Avonam, says the Medrash. It's not at all clear. It's opaque. It's ambiguous. It's completely unclear what was their sin. So this particular source in Chazal, the Medrash, here in Beresh's Rabbah, describes more or less in all sorts of vivid ways that their sin was a kind of rebellion against Hashem, perhaps even outright Avodah zara, But certainly they built this tower, and according to one opinion, even putting kind of a sword or something on top, as if to say we're waging war on God, or at least we're breaking free from His authority. This rebellion against God was, you know, kind of a form of Avodah zara. certainly a rebellion against Hashem. However, once the Medrash has established that, he is immediately bothered by the obvious question, which is, if that was the sin, which is certainly quite serious, then what do we, how do we account for the vast discrepancy between the punishment of these two generations? The flood, klum, no one is left over, no one survives, everyone is killed. It's a total wipeout. But when it comes to this Mikdal Babel, the dor haflaga. I'm sure it was inconvenient. I'm sure it made life difficult. It's such a radical change. They had all been together with one language and then they get completely dispersed all four corners of the earth. But at the end of the day, the people survived. They weren't all killed and wiped out. They were in the generation of the flood. What explains this vast discrepancy, the difference in punishments? So the Medrash here in Barishas Rabbah suggests that there was a redeeming quality. It wasn't so much the difference in the sin, but rather, maybe both generations had a terrible sin, but only the Dorha HaFlagah had a particularly redeeming quality which saved them. And the Medrash explains as follows. If you assume that one of, if not the primary sin of the generation of the flood was Hamas, was stealing. So what that really tells us, says the Medrash, is that there were completely frayed societal bonds. There was no mutual respect. If you can steal from your neighbor, how much respect could you have for him? And if you could steal from him, you're probably not a good neighbor in many, many other ways. It was a totally divided society; everyone out for themselves. Dog, eat, you know, dog eats dog, man eats, you know, whatever the phrase is. You know, everyone was out there for themselves. Therefore, says the Medrash, there was no redeeming quality; Hashem had to punish them so severely. However, when it comes to the Dora Perhaps they were rebelling against Hashem, it was terrible, but they were unified with each other, as the psukim seemed to imply, Safa achat achadim. common language, common purpose, they were unified. That unity, that achdus says the medrash, it doesn't take away from their sin, but it does serve as a redeeming and protective quality, which saved them from destruction. Says the medrash, we see from this, hashalom hamachlokus. just how much Hashem values shalom, and how much he hates Machlokas. So there you have the opinion of the Medrash Rabbah that despite their sin being a one of rebellion against Hashem, their achtas, their unity, their common purpose, save them from the ultimate punishment. It's striking that in a different source in Chazal, in the Pirkei Rebbe Yezer, in Perkav Dalid, I think the Medrash is establishing, from their perspective in the Pirkei Rebbe Yezer, that, that very quality of having a common vision and goal turned out to be, in the Medrash's opinion, not the saving grace, not the redeeming quality of Medrash Rabbah, but actually their sin. And I say this because the Medrash paints this very tragic but fascinating uh, story and depiction of this incredible tower that they built, seven stories high, and they had a very uh, organized engineering and construction system. The people would go up and bring the bricks up, going up the east side of the tower, and then they would go down uh, this west side of the tower. Now everything worked very uh, symbiotically and very well. Okay, however you can imagine, and it's even true now, but certainly in the ancient world, uh, a building this big, so complex, with such heavy things, with big bricks, incredibly dangerous. And whatever system of pulleys and whatever they had built certainly was not foolproof. And the measure says, sometimes people would fall to their death. But lo hayu samim liba malav. But the other people around, no one paid attention. There was a job to do. However, achas. but if a brick would fall, then Hayu Yoshvin Vubochen they would cry. Omrim Oilanu, woe is to us. When are we going to get another brick so we can keep on going with our construction? Now, on some level you could just say simply, they valued money or the bricks more than the individual human life, human life, perhaps. But I would like to suggest, I think what really is being depicted here, and I think it's particularly poignant as a foil to what we saw from the Medrash Rabbah, is that sometimes you have, and I think this is what the Pirkei Blyasar is suggesting, when people are dedicated to a common cause, what can happen in very tragic situations is that that vision gets distorted and it becomes so important that it becomes more important than the individuals themselves, perhaps even than life itself. It takes on a life of its own, and it supersedes the value of the individuals. The humanity of each individual becomes secondary to the cause and to this unified vision. And it's a kind of a form of, uh, I don't know if you call it social, socialism or totalitarianism, where the actual cause and the state and the state's goals, in this case of building the tower, become more important than the individual. And I think we see here in these two midrashim the complex and delicate balance between caring about the individual and caring about the cause or the common, the common goal. The gracious rabba the medrash, was highlighting the importance of the achtos and the common goal. But Pichar el biezer is teaching us a very important lesson. We have to be very careful that it, while it's valuable to have a common goal, if the goal is good, it can never come at the expense of the value of the individual. After so many years of building and preparing and waiting, the time finally arrives. The rain is falling, the floodwaters are rising, and as a result, we read, V'yobo noach uvanov v'ishto un'shevanov ito elateva b'fnei mehama'bul." Noach and his children, wife and children's wives, everyone entered into the teva, because of the waters of the flood. At first glance, this pasuk seems unremarkable, maybe even superfluous. Of course, Noach entered the teva, and yet Rashi quotes an incredible medrash that suggests that Noach only went into the teva mipnei mehamabul. That he was forced, Mepnei, not just that he went into the ark because it was raining, because the flood had started, but Mepnei, in the sense that he was forced by the rising waters, the force of the water pushed him in, carried him into the ark. However, the Medrash continues, until that moment, until the water had enough force to push him and to force him into the Teva, Noah had refused to enter because, says the Medrash, Noach was He was of minimal, little faith. hamabul. He believed but didn't believe. Really wasn't committed. Really wasn't convinced that the flood would ever come. And therefore, until the water got so high and so strong that it forced him in, he still wasn't convinced, and therefore he did not enter the ark on his own volition. This is a shocking. Really, an astonishing medrash. Noach, the one, in fact, the only one that the Torah refers to as a tzaddik, a tzaddik tamim, a fully righteous tzaddik. Now the medrash is saying that that very tzaddik lacked the faith, the belief, the amunah in Hashem's word and his promise. Does it make any sense that Noach would spend all those years, all that time, extend all that effort? To build an ark for a flood that he didn't really believe would happen? Rabblev Yitzhak of Berdichev, in his incredible Sefer, Kedushas Levi, answers and addresses this question by first asking an additional question Why did Noah never challenge HaKadosh Baruch Hu's decision, his decree to destroy the world? Why didn't he challenge Hashem in the same way that Avraham does when he's told about the impending destruction of Sidon? If Avram could challenge, albeit eventually in a losing cause, but still, Avram's instinct was to defend people, to argue for the preservation of life, why didn't Noach do the same? Especially when you consider the magnitude of the destruction that he was told was coming was far greater, obviously, than the magnitude or the destruction that Avram heard about. So in order to answer both of these questions, the Kedushas Levi suggests an incredible, really remarkable Insight, and in Chiddush. And he explains, Reb that the Medrash is really asserting that Noah lacked faith in himself. He was mekatnei amunah, not that he didn't believe in God's word or God's promise, but rather that he didn't believe in himself. In the words of Reb despite the fact that he was a tzaddik gadol v'tamim, nevertheless he was a katan be'enav ma'od. In his own eyes he was a nobody. He had no faith in himself, that he had any kind of righteousness or power. He saw himself as no different, and therefore no better than everyone else. This is an incredibly powerful and really shocking insight, that Noah's humility was to such an extreme that he lacked total self-awareness. And he really thought he was no better than anybody else but if you accept that insight you accept that Khidish sort of Yitzchak continues and he explains that Noah never saw himself as being worthy of worthy of being saved certainly not any more than anybody else and he says that's the reason why Noah never argued with Hashem it wasn't because he was apathetic or self absorbed Avram cared about other people Noah didn't it's ridiculous Rather, says Rav Levi he didn't argue with HaKadosh Baruch Hu because he lacked the confidence to argue. After all, it takes a lot of confidence, perhaps some chutzpah as well, to argue with Hashem. We just assumed that anyone could do it if Avram did it. But really, if you think about it, how would somebody argue with Hashem when they heard a direct command, a direct message from Hashem? That takes a lot of self-confidence, to put it mildly. And Noah, says Rav Yitzhak, was completely lacking that. He did not have the belief in himself to argue with Hashem. He was too insecure about his own worthiness to do something that audacious. That's what it means, says Relevi Yitzhak. Now I would add that it's not explicitly clear in this explanation by Relevi Yitzhak, how do we understand the first part of the Medrash? That the waters forced Noah into the Teva. We now understand, according to Leib Yitzchak, why he didn't try to save anybody else. But why didn't he try to save himself? Why didn't he go into the ark when he had a chance right away when the rain was falling, when the flood's water started rising? Perhaps, I would suggest, it's because of what started out as a self-doubt snowballed into almost paralyzing insecurity. By the time the flood waters began to rise, Noah had reached the point where he was no longer sure that he even deserved to be saved. He was a mammon ve'enu Mamin about his own virtue. It wasn't just that he didn't think he was a tzaddik enough to fight with Hashem. He didn't even think he deserved to be saved. And I think taken together, this is a very powerful and instructive explanation and insight by Rav Levi Yitzchak in this Sefer Kedushas Levi. The Torah, of course, extols us in many ways by the virtue of modesty. But we must always be aware of the fine line between modesty and insecurity and self-doubt. It's often a faint one and easy to miss. And as evidenced by Noah, it can totally, self-doubt, excuse me, can be exacerbated by pressurized situations and over time can even become paralyzing. We have to realize, unlike Noah, that to pass life's most demanding tests, we do need a healthy degree of self-confidence. Rarely, if ever, are people who lack any self-confidence successful in all areas of life. That was where Noah fell short, and it's a lesson we can learn from his mistake. In the immediate aftermath of the flood, we read the tragic story of Noah planting a vineyard, becoming intoxicated, exposing and then denigrating himself. The Torah recounts how Chum informs the other sons, Shem and Yefet, about what he has noticed, what Noah has done, and then those two, Shem and Yephet, take a garment and they cover their father's nakedness, preserving his dignity. Commenting on this pasuk, Rashi cites a medrash that. Acknowledges that Shame, in fact, took the initiative in this mitzvah, and therefore his descendants, the Jewish people, are awarded with a mitzvah relating to a garment, the mitzvah of Tzitzes. Because he did a mitzvah with a garment covering his father, his descendants will get the mitzvah of Tzitzes. And what is striking is in the formulation that Rashi quotes from the Medrash, it describes what Shame did as a mitzvah. Well, what mitzvah are we talking about? seems like, at least it's not a stretch to assume that we're talking about the mitzvah of Aim, which further suggests something really striking is it possible that this is implying that even non-Jews are obligated in Aim? Really fascinating we didn't know that, but uh, the truth is that not only is that the possible interpretation of the Medrash in our parsha um, in Devarim Raba, uh, the Medrash also says something amazing, Rabshim and Gamlil none less than Rabshim and Gamlil declares that the greatest exemplar, the greatest person in Kibur Aim was Esav. And Rukhshun Gamliel attests about himself that he was very meticulous in the mitzvah. But even he was outdone by Esav. After all, he admits that when he would go to the market, he wore nicer clothing than when he took care of his father. But, says Rukhshun Gamliel, Esav reserved his finest clothing for when he was taking care of his father, Yitzhak. So, again, certainly possible that this is not meant to be taken halachically, but suggests that there may be some element of kibber which is universal and not something that's just limited to the Jewish people and the Tariag Mitzvos. On the other hand, it's worth noting, there is the famous uh, Gemara and story in Chazal about Dama ben Esinah, the non-Jew from Ashkelon, who had an opportunity for great wealth and riches and turned it down because he didn't want to wake up his father, he knew his father wanted to take a nap, that showed tremendous Kiva Aim. Of course the story ends well, he gets another opportunity, and then he makes back the money that he lost the first time. But the Gemara itself, in complimenting him, using him as a role model for us, Vachnina says, you see from this story something amazing. Look how much this non-Jew who was not commanded was rewarded, so we should realize all the more so, we who are commanded in of aim we will be rewarded if we fulfill the mitzvah." So here it's pretty clear Abba Hanin is assuming that Dama ben Nisina, the non-Jew, was not obligated in Kibber Aveim. So there is perhaps some element of ambiguity uh, in these sources in Chazal. But I think it's probably safe to say it's more of a minority view. But there are absolutely clearly identifiable sources, halakhic sources, that do seem to say that non-Jews are obligated in some form of Kibber Aveim. For example, there's a discussion in the postgame why we, don't make a bracha each and every time we fulfill the mitzvah of Kibbut Why don't we say, vitzivanu on the mitzvah of Kibbut before we do things for our parents? So there are a number of answers to this question. But one answer, suggested in the Chuvas Binyam Zev, is that there is no bracha on any mitzvah, which is also uh, relevant to non-Jews. We only make brachos, in his opinion, on mitzvahs which are uniquely obligatory and performed by Jews. And that way we can say, truly, Asher Kodeshano b'Mitzvahsavitzivan. We have, we, we have been sanctified. Only us. We're doing this because of the mitzvah, and people who don't have the mitzvah don't do it. But non-Jews who do keep it we're not unique in that, and therefore there's no bracha. So it's possible, not 100 uh, percent definitive, not moharach, but it's possible that he's implying that non-Jews themselves are obligated in keeping avaim, and therefore we're not distinguished uh, in our performance. Now you could uh, argue and say all he means is that non-Jews actively perform the action, they perform the mitzvah of Kibra they respect their parents but they're not obligated, it's possible but it's definitely possible to read it that he is saying that they are commanded two sources which are more unimpeachable and unambiguous are from the Gonim Shulben ben Chafni Gon in his commentary uh, on our Parsha as well as in other places is very clear as he lists uh, a whole rishima, a whole list of mitzvahs that non-Jews are obligated in and one of the mitzvahs he says clearly is Kiv avaim, and he quotes the psukim in our Parsha about shame uh, taking care of his father uh, Noah furthermore uh, sources that say that Cham who didn't really help he was actually cursed for not fulfilling the mitzvah so you see here says Ashul nigon that is a mitzvah it is a meritorious act for a non-Jew to, uh, to uh, honor his or her parents furthermore Rabbi Nisim Gaon in his introduction to all of Shas right printed usually before Masech Tabrachos he says all rational mitzvos including something like Kibar HaVeim all rational mitzvos are obligatory on non-Jews. This is actually an idea that the netziv in some of his writings takes up. So if you assume that, Jew, that non-Jews are obligated in all rational mitzvot, uh, we presume that Kibber HaVeim is on pretty much everyone's list of rational mitzvot, so that'd be yet another source that non-Jews are obligated. One area, a very interesting discussion in halacha where this comes up is the discussion about converts. If a, Jew, if a non-Jew converts to Judaism, what are his or her obligations vis-à-vis the non-Jewish parents? So, this is a big discussion, but one slice of that discussion is the Pesach and the Shulchan Aruch, uh, which is based on the Rambam, that a, a Jew, Jew who was a convert is prohibited from showing disrespect, cursing or hitting or any way disrespecting his or her parents. Shalayomru, they shouldn't say, that somehow... No, it's it's easier to be a Jew. On the contrary, it's supposed to be higher standards, and they shouldn't have been more respectful of their parents before they converted than now after. That's the Pesach of the Shulchan Aruch. And many poskim take note of this rationale. That sounds like they were obligated in Kibbut HaVeim when they were not Jewish. Now we don't want it to be that now that they converted, they have a less obligation. You're supposed to get more mutlous when you convert, not less. But that implies that they were commanded. But were they? Were they not? What's going on? So, a number of answers to this question, but Rav Moshe Feinstein has actually a very fascinating answer in the Igros Moshe. He says it's true there's no formal, real Chiv of Kibraveim. He says that's clear in most sources. But he thinks that all non-Jews, everyone is commanded in Hakar Satov, basic human gratitude and, dig- and decency. And therefore, even a non-Jew is obligated to share not the formal mitzvah of Kibraveim, but the basic mitzvah of Hakar Satov gratitude with his or her parents.